It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. It's a special edition of the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. And in this episode, and in just a minute, I'm interviewing independent journalist Andy No, who has written a new book about Antifa and BLM protesters and rioters called Unmasked. It's a good look into the movement and one story that no one's ever told quite like him before because he's been watching it for years now. And of course, this is an issue, something I deal with on nearly every episode of this podcast because of our exclusive serial podcast of Antifa versus Mike Strickland. Now, that serial podcast is a story of a Portland independent journalist, sound familiar, who in 2016 was beaten out of a protest as he covered it for his YouTube channel called Laughing at Liberals. They did not like him very much and they wanted him out. He was basically patient zero, the first guy who got canceled by the mob. And when he didn't comply with leaving their protest on public property, a city street, the mob came back and they attacked him and Strickland pulled his legal concealed carry firearm and backed them off. And guess who got in trouble? Mike Strickland for backing off a mob of masked Antifa protesters slash assaulters, never firing a shot. Mike Strickland was the one who went to jail. He was the first person the mob came after. He wanted to be, they wanted to cancel him and they did. They tried to anyway. So the backstory is intriguing. Please check out the earlier episodes of the Adult in the Room podcast to get the full scope of this story. It is continuing as an an ongoing serial about the case of Mike Strickland, which heads toward the Supreme Court. Now, at the same time, a student who happened to be at that protest where Mike Strickland was tossed out and then refused to leave and then was tossed out again, except he pulled his his legal gun and never fired a shot, but held the mob off, was a student at Portland State University just hanging around, deciding that, well, you know, I might take some video of this. You never know the the, the protest. And his name was Andy No. And if you listen to the last episode of the Adult in the Room podcast in the Mike Strickland series, Antifa versus Mike Strickland, you will hear some of Andy's testimony in support of Mike Strickland. They didn't even know each other at that time. And Andy was, I guess, trying to emulate him to find out what it was like to be at protests and to take video. And of course, now he's written a book about it. So it's fascinating how this whole thing has turned and indeed how it has an interplay in the Mike Strickland story. But what happened to Strickland was he went to jail. He was the one prosecuted, not the people who gave him a beating, not the people who conspired, literally conspired against him. And they admitted it in court to get him thrown out of that particular protest in 2016. Well, three years later, almost the same thing happened to Andy No. You may know about that case three years after Mike Strickland's case. And, of course, Andy, having testified in the Strickland case and watched it a little bit, knew what happened to Strickland. And in his case, he did not fight back. He just took the beating. 
So instead of going to jail like Strickland, when Strickland fought back and brought out his uh, legal gun, Andy No took the beating. I mean, he tried to get away, but he certainly didn't do anything in response, except they did. They sent him not to jail. Antifa sent him to the hospital with brain damage, and he talks a little bit about that in his book, Unmasked. This is the milieu in which Andy No and Mike Strickland learn their craft. Portland, before the riots of the summer of 2020, before the 2017 riot supposedly against Donald Trump, uh, when Andy was just figuring things out and Mike was all in it, uh, this is what happened to Mike Strickland. So if this is a topic that you're interested in, continue to listen to the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. And by all means, please subscribe to this podcast. Google, Apple, Spotify, Get this podcast where you get your regular shows. And by all means, please subscribe. Give me five stars, even if you hate it. And give me a review. Please give me a great review. Why? Well, of course, it helps me beat the algorithm, but also it helps because the trolls for Antifa are also trying to crash this podcast. Gee, I wonder why. Interesting. Antifa allies have been most displeased with this effort and have begun the assault on my ratings. It went from a 5 to a 4.5. So please give me a five-star rating. We're playing the algorithm here, folks. Now, in my interview with Andy, we go into what the aims are of Antifa, the upshot, his experiences, and even some things I did not know. And I've been careful to observe the Portland protest culture. I'm a homegrown kid there and a now grown up woman. And I've been watching this stuff since the Friday at four drum circles, the answer crowd, anti-war things, the Bush Hitler stuff. And those things gave way to the May Day melees. And that gave rise to Occupy that and of course the unions. And those same activists involved in a lot of that stuff and the anarchists that came alongside They all came together to create Antifa, and Rose City Antifa is the most active Antifa group in the United States, to the very detriment of the city of Portland. And now, my interview with Andy No about his book, Unmasked, on the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. Andy No, you've just written your book, Unmasked, and it's a privilege to read it because it reminds me so much of what's been going on in the Pacific Northwest for so many years and has just gotten worse. As you know, I follow the Mike Strickland story and have been doing a serial podcast about his you know, trial and travails in the city of Portland and in the, the county of Multnomah. So I, what I'd like to know is, when did you first become aware of Antifa in Portland, where you were? So back in 2016, I was a new student journalist at uh, the Portland State Vanguard. And one of the assignments that I uh, was assigned to do was to cover the reaction to the surprise electoral win of uh, Donald Trump in November 2016. And the response from Portlanders wasn't just to take out to the streets in the thousands to protest their objections to uh, that democratic process, but actually many of them responded with violence. And that was the first time I came face-to-face with 
what looked like organized marauding gangs of people dressed in the same black uniforms, carrying weapons openly, starting fires and destroying property. And they did that for three days. Um, I look back now and three days seems so short of a period to riot for Portland, considering uh, the 120 days of nightly riots that happened in 2020. But that was the first time that I saw them and began to cover them. And uh, for the next four years, uh, political violence on the streets of Portland, my home city, became routine and banal. And the coverage from the local journalists were so biased in that they were essentially willingly or not repeating the propaganda talking points of Antifa in presenting this violent extremist movement um, and in the case of Portland, an actual organization, Rose City Antifa, presenting them as if they were some type of noble anti-fascist protecting people of color, when what I was seeing was that their violence was quite indiscriminate and the label of fascist was applied extremely broad uh, and unfortunately, eventually, it was applied to me by them, which was used as a justification when they severely beat me in the summer of 2019. They've certainly come a long way from the drum circles uh, Friday afternoon at four o'clock around buildings in downtown Portland. And indeed, May Day is a an annual an annual quote unquote celebration of their violence. And uh, so if you miss those, you missed the foretaste of Antifa doing what it's been doing for the past few years. When did Antifa become more violent, do you think? The election win of Trump, as I write in the book, was really quite a turning point for them because they've existed on the fringes of the Portland's far left for years. And, and to set the context for, for listeners, Portland is a very left-wing uh, monoculture, and Portlanders quite celebrate that about the city. Um, a lot of people... Uh, uh, living alternative lifestyles just for the sake of being weird, if not for any other reason. And that has created a cultural climate where it does tolerate uh, far-left politics. But Antifa was able to move into the mainstream left, and that was very crucial um, after Trump won, because they were aided by now new liberal allies, and by liberals I'm referring to mainstream Democrats, because collectively, they all had a shared um, enemy in that of the Trump administration and the former president. Um, they really did believe, um, according to what they were putting out, that this was now ascendant American fascism and that we needed to respond ASAP, otherwise a Holocaust was imminent. So that type of legitimacy that was given to them by the mainstream press um, is what allowed them to not just explode in numbers, but also embolden them to carry out more and more acts of violence. And they were able to do it essentially with impunity because the prosecutor for the counties where much of the violence was concentrated, for example, um, in Seattle or Portland or Berkeley or uh, other progressive areas, well, now they were under pressure to not go too hard on far-left militants who were arrested at riots because 
um, the narrative that we've been told is if you're against Antifa, that means you're pro-fascism. Of course, yes. When did you become aware that you might become a victim of Antifa on the streets of Portland? May Day, which is the first of May, a big uh, for left-wing activists and union labor activists, a big day. But it's also a day where Antifa traditionally riot, not just in America, it's international. Uh, they riot a lot on that day in European cities, for example. But May Day of 2019 was a bit of a turning point. That was the first time that I was physically assaulted by them. They had uh, there was a riot outside this Antifa pub, which is now um, closed, called Cider Riot. And I was there documenting it with my camera. And I was a victim of assault that day that was actually caught on camera with my mobile phone. They sprayed me with what I think was bare mace directly in the face. Um, that was reported to police. Uh, nothing ever happened. Uh, I've written about Cider Riot a lot. That was a center that was used as a social gathering place for Antifa. And it was soon after that that there was one of the Antifa militants after leaving the pub apparently got in a fight with other people and was killed. And so there's just been a lot of violence around that area. Um, but at their response of uh, violence that day and then soon after uh, when I identified one of the militants who was involved in the fighting outside the bar, they then um, started releasing my personal information such as my whereabouts and all that. So that was an escalation. And uh, the, it, was, it was a warning shots to me that they were willing to escalate and that I needed to fear. All this was reported to police, which at that time I still had a lot of um, faith in, at least the local authorities, to do something. Um, and uh, in June was when, uh, when there was a riot uh, on the 29th of June when they beat me uh, in the course of me doing another one of the coverages of their protests right outside of the Justice Center within eyesight of the police department. And there were police there, undoubtedly, but they didn't come to help you. No, I didn't get any help, which was, I mean, just, I guess, the symbolism in that this was, so courthouses were all around me, the sheriff's office was right there, the central police station, so all these things, and uh, yet it was just anarchy and chaos, but um, that whole area is really... uh, primarily the zone where Antifa go to riot over and over. They did it doing, going years now. In 2020, the, the park that is adjacent to the uh, Justice Center is where they have their staging grounds, uh, like sta- literally stations set up, uh, supplies, riot supplies, etc. We've been following the Michael Strickland case through the courts and maybe possibly even going to the U.S. Supreme Court after he drew his gun to stop a band of black bloc from getting him a second time. And that happened in 2016, as you know, because you were there. And and, uh, what did that portend as a possible uh, potential being a victim for you, if you gather the meaning of that hackneyed question? So... 
Yes, I was very close to Michael, and I didn't know him at that time. I knew just of him. I knew he had a YouTube channel, and I knew that he was extremely hated by Antifa on the far left in the city. And what I saw was that people were um, confronting him, accosting him, and escalating their confrontations with him throughout the day, eventually leading to what I recall as there was a small mob of them who forced him out. And I seem to recall that at least one of them had like a stick or some type of potential weapon. And so the coverage that I saw, particularly from, let's say, Portland Mercury and Willamette Week and uh, all the local press at the time, I was quite appalled because the headlines were framing this as a... uh, a near mass shooting by white supremacists or something when what I had saw was that people were confronting somebody with a camera and were threatening imminent violence. Um, I didn't know Michael. Ultimately, I was subpoenaed to give testimony at his trial um, for what I saw and experienced. But that was, so that was um, in this, I, I forget what month it was, but July. it was earlier. Yes, summer 2016. So it was before I was really aware of Antifa. But that was an eye-opening experience that I saw that, like, how the local media could turn the victim into not just the aggressor, but, like, into, like, a monster. And that's how they framed him. Um, Of course, uh, I didn't think that I would eventually become victim to that same type of smear tactics but ultimately did i mean in 2019 after i was beaten after i was a victim of assault the headlines and stories that were coming out from these extremely biased local publications was again that i was a provocateur that i intentionally incite violence and then record just antifa responding when all of that stuff was defamatory um they interviewed these anonymous antifa people who went undercover and made these allegations about me making partnerships and deals with conservative groups like Patriot Prayer, the Proud Boys, all of it was false. But I couldn't even uh, um, confront my accusers because they were given anonymity by, for example, the Portland Mercury. And then these headlines were repeated in bigger publications like Rolling Stone and Salon. And then so whenever you Google me now, you look at my Wikipedia page, all you see are these accusations. And it's, you know, all of this has been this attempt to try to get me canceled, try to make me out to be someone I'm not, make me out to be a, a far-right extremist. Um, when that, they they haven't succeeded. I have a book um, out, and uh, it's with a major publisher. I still write for major publications, so... I'm still going. You're still um, going. They, by, haven't, they haven't fully yeah. canceled you yet, huh, Andy? Yeah. Um, so these people, they doxed you, and then they came after you, and they looked up where your parents live. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be canceled and to be doxed and threatened? Um. I'll talk from a perspective or, or an angle that you don't, I don't think I've talked about much before, but um, the reaction from some former friends and those who uh, would identify as conservative when they saw that um, there were all these efforts to make me essentially into a toxic person that nobody wanted to touch, like instead of standing by me, some of them in order to protect 
their own reputations uh, through our friendship under the bus and chose to distance themselves from me. And these are people who were allegedly conservative on my side. Uh, that was very, very hurtful. And it made me, um, that whole experience that I went through in 2019 in the second half really um, has, makes me question whenever these accusations come out against people who have been canceled, just because uh, with my own experience, I can know that you can literally turn a victim into the aggressor um, through uh, biased writing or smear hit pieces, etc. Um, but the response um, uh, from the, the left was then they were essentially throwing anything and everything they could at me, hoping that it would stick. And some of it did stick because these um, accusations were then laundered from, you know, the blog of Portland Mercury online then to these bigger publications. So that's kind of how this whole machine of canceling somebody works. And some of these so-called journalists are not just extremely biased, but like very, very vicious people. And you see their conduct online. It was so unprofessional that not only do some of them, you know, want to get me canceled, it's like they've actually put me literally in danger. So I write about this in the book um, about the fellow travelers and even members of Antifa who are actually who work in the uh, journalism career profession. Um, Alex Zelinsky for um, yes, who is the editor, a news editor of the Portland Mercury, one of Portland's uh, paper of record. So she uh, last year during the riots, when I was there undercover, she somehow received intel of where I was, and she publicly posted that live on Twitter. And so people then began to try to assault me with their lasers from a distance, to try to blind my eyes. These are the same lasers they use against uh, law enforcement that damaged their vision. So I called her out for that. She never apologized. And her, the Portland Mercury never apologized either. So these are the places that um, have really brainwashed Portlanders. And when people ask me, how could regular citizens, taxpayers, families, um, business owners in Portland not come out more forcefully against Antifa and BLM? Well, you know, look to the media, look to the local press. That really sets the narrative and they believe it. The mayor even believes it. And so, um, you know, there's just this whole system that goes way beyond the street violence of Antifa. It's like it involves all these other um, media institutions, even academe, entertainment and all that. All of this has come to really embolden and empower Antifa. The In the case of Strickland, not only the media came together, as you've rightly pointed out, but the Justice Department also did in terms of the local justice people, the police, etc. Based on lies and smears, which you've experienced, the bail for Strickland was raised to $250,000. Murderers, in some cases, don't even, or alleged murderers, don't even get that. And in addition to that, he was never able to confront his accusers. Only two of 10 people were named. The rest of them had hoodies or backpacks or, you're not going to believe this, masks over their face, Andy. 
Now, who are these people? How do they make a living? So Antifa, uh, they include people from all strata of society. And one of the projects that I was doing in the, the course of researching and writing Unmasked is that I was looking at everybody who had been arrested and charged at these riots. And that provided the largest known sample size for um, arrestees related to Antifa riots anywhere in the U.S. The case in, in Portland, we have over a thousand cases to go through. And um, in addition to requesting booking photos through public records, um, getting the charges and finding out what happens, I also look into the backgrounds. And um, surprisingly, some of these people come from what is seen as noble white-collar professions. So some of those arrested and charged have been academics. They've been students who are working on master's or PhDs. Um, they've been people who work as registered nurses. A lot of arrestees have come from uh, OHSU, by the way, Oregon Health and Science University. Stunning. Um, of course, a lot from Portland State and other uh, in private universities in the state as well. Um, there's been a professor who was arrested. There and lawyers. Excuse me. And so it includes that, but then it also includes a lot of people who are vulnerable members of society, such as those who are vagrants, those who are dealing with mental health issues. And so the what made the riots so... Um, what helped con made them go on for so long in Portland, and they still continue to this day, was that um, Antifa in Portland and other cities were able to establish... Um, networks for supplies, which included not just bright gear and weapons, but things like food and even housing. And that then attracted a lot of vagrants from downtown who came, who maybe not even be really aware what this ideology is about, but is given resources and a community and sort of an excuse to be violent. And so, um, it's a very exploitative movement, and um, unfortunately, it's been given uh, a sort of backing from the mainstream left. And, you know, I don't think um, the prosecutors have done uh, doing what they're supposed to do. Um, I mentioned how there have been a thousand um, cases involved of the riots in Portland, and over 90% of those individuals have had their charges dropped just as a matter of policy that was implemented as soon as uh, the district attorney, Mike Sch Schmidt, came into office, uh, literally decriminalized felony rioting and other crimes. So they're the given aid. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. What was your question? Oh, I was going to say they're given aid and comfort by the institutions in Portland, the institutions that they claim they don't want to be a part of. For example, the DA's office, as you mentioned. Also, the fact that the uh, Antifa riot allies received funding from COVID relief funds, the snack block people. Uh, riot ribs, I don't know about whether they got government money, but they certainly were supported 
it's a story you tell in your book, Unmasked. Talk a little bit about those allies if you have a second to do that and and explain to the listeners how it is they they are they're able to sustain themselves. Yeah, I talk about the funding in the book and one of the misconceptions out there on the right is that there's like rich millionaire billionaire um donors who are giving money to support any of the writers it, it's not like that at all the funding for how they do it is actually right in the open and we can see how it's done so in portland for example um when it came to the providing legal aid and bail funds to uh right accused writers accused of really heinous crimes like serious assaults um arson things like that and for those who had a bail set, there was a PDX uh, Portland Bail Fund that was set up, one of these ad hoc groups, and they were able to organize on GoFundMe and bypass the terms of service because GoFundMe doesn't allow people to fundraise for those accused of um, violent crimes. But now there's this front group, and they raised one point th- more than $1.3 million. So literally mm-hmm. every single one of their members including one person who was accused of stabbing somebody and had their bail set at $250,000. All of them got bailed out. And then most of them had their charges dropped anyway. So this money was given back and was reinvested and given grants to other uh, Antifa cells in neighboring and nearby areas like Eugene, Oregon, for example. So there's that. Um, there. Another thing as you talk about is in addition to the, the crowdfunding, I mean, you've talked about this, the Snack Block, which is the name of this BLM Antifa radical group that actually has nonprofit status and they applied for federal COVID relief money. And the Oregon <laughs> Health Authority gave them, how much was it again? Was it $140,000. $140,000 of federal taxpayers' money this group got. And if you looked on the social media, which I've archived a lot, some of it has been deleted. Mm-hmm. They were posting like the illustrate drawings of graffiti and stuff that they say they liked. And some of it included like a beheaded cop um, videos that they were posting on their social media, including where um, pro- alleged protesters or accused rioters calling for police to be killed really like extreme radical stuff and they were also sharing the flyers for these riots right on their instagram and twitter even yeah so i was appalled that public money was going towards this (laughs) you know so it's not just a head shaker we're we're funding our own destruction essentially in this particular case so you know, this just point, you know, at the aggregate level, it just points to this whole, because there's such been like a, a full dominance by the, um, the left in not just culture, but now politics and, and all aspects of uh, the federal government as well It's in local governments. It's like they have no counterpoise and no ability to moderate. So that's how you have people in the mainstream left who are defending those who loot, who destroy, who burn down neighborhoods, who hurt people in the name of so-called social justice, racial justice. And you're using public money to fund some of these groups who are open 
about their promoting riots and yeah. other criminal activities. Yeah. I noticed that you and, and your excellent book, Unmasked, you talk about the networks of bookstores and other kinds of things, one of which, ironically, I mean, or shockingly, was called The Base in New York City, which is, of course, what Al-Qaeda means. It just like, what? I mean, that was done with, there was a purpose behind that, I'm sure. But also something that struck me as I read Unmasked is that the there's a role that the Southern Poverty Law Center actually takes in the underpinnings of Antifa, they basically select the targets. In many ways, yes. So the targets that Antifa picks, um, these targets then eventually make their way frequently to a huge uh, nonprofit such as the SPLC. And this is an organization that has hundreds of millions of dollars in endowments and savings and other things according to their tax state statements. And they've listed me and gone after me in their writings on their hate watch. You know, so this is like a, a, a nonprofit that is using their status to essentially mainstream ideas from Antifa. Now, the thing is, um, what makes it hard to go after the SPLC and or Antifa or BLM, any of these groups is like just by the way they brand themselves in the names. Mm. Anytime you oppose them, then you are through this binary thinking accused of being then in support of another. So if you're, you know, against an anti-hate organization, that means you're pro-hate speech, pro-racism, pro-fascism. And uh, that type of smearing really does work. I mean, there's a lot of people who have been had their lives destroyed through these campaigns that they mobilize through online to target people to get them not just erased from social media, but you can get your bank account canceled, you get your PayPal yes. canceled, you can get banned from Uber. So it's just like relentless. And it's um, these people, some of them are really out for blood. And I think, you know, there's a place for um, organizations that would, you know, monitoring uh, extremist groups, but if they are using the banner of being a hate watch group, but only looking at one political side that they are against, then it's that's a political agenda that is partisan. It's not really against just extremism because the SPLC has been negligent in going after Antifa groups, for example. I think the ADL uh, also has this problem. I mean, it's it's just this whole issue of like the extremist watch nonprofits, think tanks, all of that. They're not even viewing Antifa as an extremist ideology and movement. So there's like no, they're they're facing <laughs> no opposition from anywhere. Yeah. Um. So there is a nexus that you talk about in your book, Unmasked, with BLM. You and I differ a little bit on at the point at which this uh, collaboration began, I've never seen BLM operate separate from Antifa, even in Ferguson, because it was at Ferguson that um, Lisa Fithian, who was an Occupy direct action person, came to Ferguson to train people into 
you know, hurting the cops and doing whatever it was that they were doing there in addition to looting. And so um, so that's the only concern I have with your timeline. But uh, talk a little bit about um, talk a little bit about BLM and, and let's listen, if we can, to something that actually Mike uh, Mike Strickland put up on the Web. It's um, a soundbite from Portland's BLM person and uh, the person in charge of Don't Shoot Portland. My name is Ty Carpenter, and I'm the president of Don't Shoot Portland. (laughs) Teresa Rayford is also my mother. And I just want to say, I didn't come here to listen to a sermon. There's no fucking, there's no such thing as fucking peaceful protest. That is an exercise. That is an exercise in all lives matter bullshit. And it's not going to stand. There is no peaceful protest. We are being fucking murdered. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's no there's no peaceful protest, Andy. The 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 uh, top has been blown. We know there is no such thing as a peaceful protest for these guys, and they do ally themselves with Antifa. Why do they get a pass so much? They get a pass because people are deathly afraid of being called racist, and I've been very vocally critical of "Don't Shoot Portland," which is Portland's BLM style group. Uh, it was founded by Teresa Rayford, which is the mother of that woman in the audio you just played. Mm-hmm. Teresa Rayford ran for mayor um, in the uh, mayoral election in 2020. And she actually received, as a write-in candidate in November, received around 13% of the vote. That is significant. Okay, so Ted Wheeler lost uh, excuse me, Ted Wheeler won by about six point six percentage points ahead of um, his opponent, Sarah Inaroni, who called herself um, Antifa and expressed support for Antifa. Sarah Inaroni only lost because there was somebody more harder to her left, I'm referring to Teresa, who siphoned votes off from her. So there is significant support for far-left extremism in Portland. Jeez. It's not the majority but there's a critical mass of it. And you can see, you know, look at these statements that are made. That audio clip you played, that wasn't recorded like in a secret meeting, in a secret room. Right. This was made on a microphone in the public. And this should be headlines because these organizations like Don't Shoot Portland and other BLM chapters, BLM style groups are openly advocating for violence. And yet the public are not made aware of it. And actually, if you are a videographer who goes and tries to record these clips and put it out in the public, then you get targeted and smeared as a racist. Um, It's just like for me, I don't care what these groups call themselves. They can call themselves anti-fascist. They can call themselves movement for black lives, whatever. I look at their ideology, their statements, their uh, literature. I look at the people they venerate. And then I look at their actions and all that together is irrefutable evidence that these are violent extremists and they should be treated as such. You know, they should be investigated by the law. That woman who made those statements there, she should have been charged under incitement to violence. Speaking of incitement to violence, of course, we've heard about the Capitol uh, assault and that sort of thing. How about this happening in a the city council? My name is Jeff Singer. The mask has nothing to do with hiding my identity. I'm taking away my individuality. I represent a mass of humanity who are tired, hungry, poor, and huddling from tyrants like you, Mayor Wheeler. Yeah. I am. 
I am, I am so done coming here and using big words. I haven't even done it that many times, but I am done. I am done watching you look at me with that look. You're talking about sanctuary? We know it is a pointless term. It means not a goddamn thing. I have been up all night. Literally, I have not slept. Stewing over the fucking fact that one of your pigs shot a boy point blank range with a fucking assault rifle, Wheeler. This is out of control. It's ridiculous. It's a sanctuary. What sanctuary? Sanctuary from the rivers of fucking blood running around goddamn streets? Sanctuary from the fucking cold? It's over. There's no more asking you for a goddamn thing. Fuck you, Fuck you, Ted! Now, now I, I could go on, and, and uh, this this does go on, and, and surprisingly, uh, for many of our listeners, Jeff Singer does play a role in the Michael Strickland story as well. But this is Jeff Singer in a city council meeting who is inciting violence against the mayor. Yeah, that, um, that audio you just played, I quoted from it in the book just because it was so, I mean, the threats that he made were... Um, carried out eventually several years later. Um, He was one of the people who was arrested uh, in charge uh, in October of 2020 at a riot um, outside, I believe it was the Multnomah County Courthouse. But, you know, these people, like the actions that happened on the 6th of January at the siege and riot in Capitol Hill, All of those actions were done in Portland going back years now by Antifa, and it received no condemnation, um, not just from the press, but actually from local officials. In fact, many, many of them were even praised. You know, we've had people affiliated with Antifa, such as Jeff Singer, um, trying to mob their way until City Hall in downtown Portland, assaulting law enforcement, trying to force the door open when they Mm -hmm. were being pushed out, things like that. So, and uh, last year they, um, during the height of the riots in July, they were trying to burn down the, um, the federal courthouse in downtown. And so that was federal property that people were, attacking with explosives and bringing in electric power tools to try to cut into it. They try to barricade it one time and set it on fire when the officers are inside. So everything that was done on the 6th of January in the Capitol was done and worse last year for weeks on end by the very same people who are now condemning what happened. There are some people, in fact, the one gentleman from the Center for Security Policy who was there at the rally and noticed four different, four separate kinds of people uh, who were the activists that he saw at the Capitol. One of uh, one of the subgroups was people that he took to be Antifa, though they didn't necessarily do anything. But what would Antifa be doing there? So... Um, As the riots on the Capitol Hill was happening, there was a lot of viral rumors going on social media about who was involved, allegedly. And, you know, at that time, I uh, didn't weigh in because it was happening in real time and it would have been reckless to speculate on who is the affiliations of these people and we didn't even know who they were. Um, most of them have been identified by now, and I think significantly um, one one of the people who was inside the Capitol Hill during the siege, his name is John Earl Sul- uh, Sullivan. I recognized him in some of the video because he was one of the extreme BLM activists who had been arrested and charged over 
a Antifa BLM riot in Utah last year where a driver was shot. So he's been charged over his alleged role in the Capitol Hill siege. Um, but I mean, it's these type of, um, uh, you know, when some of the backgrounds of these, some of these people have been exposed and it doesn't fit a particular mold, that doesn't get the media coverage that it should. Uh, at the same time, I don't, I think, you know, we all need to be really careful about not um, placing blame entirely on, like, let's say, Antifa or mm -hmm. leftists, whatever, when we just, there's not evidence for that. There have been several, at least one individual who's been identified who is a far left person who's called for a revolution and for pulling Trump out of the White House. Um, but other people they have who've been identified and charged, they have a long history of conservative or right-wing activism. So, um, you know, to me, I, ideology and affiliations is important, but I think, you know, I'm looking at the actions and the criminal actions from that day um, were the same as what had happened last year. Mm -hmm. But the treatment, not just from politicians, but law enforcement, has been very different. Yeah. Uh, two last things, and I know you've got to go, and I'm pushing the envelope here. Ted Wheeler's seeming change of heart about Antifa. What do you make of that? Um, it's too little, too late. And I have a certain amount of sympathy for him. He's somebody who was running again uh, for a second term, and not very many Portland mayors have done that. A lot of them can only handle one term and they leave. It's a very hard position. And as I said a moment ago, there is a certain critical mass of Portlanders who support the actions of extreme Antifa and BLM. And so throughout, since his time coming to office in 2017, he's always played a little footsie with Antifa. And it was under his watch that not only did Antifa grow, I mean, Portland became the American epicenter of Antifa violence. And so eventually that violence turned around on him. So the rioters came to his home in Northwest Portland last year, and eventually he had to flee his home um, instead of empowering law enforcement to actually respond to the rioters. Instead, him and safety council kneecapped Portland police in that, for example, they banned the use of tear gas, which is a very, very effective tool in uh, dispersing the rioters. Um, Antifa recently have assaulted him when he was eating at a restaurant. They've now put out flyers that they promised to chase him out of whatever, every restaurant that he goes to. I know he had an incident with somebody um, just over the weekend where Ted Wheeler um, pepper sprayed this individual. I don't know the politics of that person, but, it, you know, it's like it's it's really pathetic to see now that this mayor is being a mayor of a major American city is being cowed in this way. Mm -hmm. But this has been partially part of his doing him and city council. Yeah. Last question. Saul Alinsky says that there's only the fight. There's there's never an end game, right? What's Antifa's motto? If Saul Alinsky leftist, and his motto is there is only the fight, what is Antifa's motto? I would say, uh, and this is based on what some of the groups actually have in their like 10 points of uh, beliefs, um, but their motto overall is that for their world to live and to thrive, America has to die. The book is unmasked. Andy, no, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, we 
haven't gotten to talk before, so this has been a pleasure. This week's episode of the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is brought to you by victoriataft.com. Editing, mastering, advertising, technical support, and understanding for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. The music is gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for the case of Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by RC, and it is used by permission. Find RC on all social sites at Raps by RC. Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Instagram at Raps by RC. Imaging for the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft is by 1A Cast. Logo by Hageman Creative. Find him on Instagram. Photo of Victoria Taft is by Hilly Collective. The Adult in the Room podcast is produced by Flamingo Road Studios. All rights reserved.